Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast Extras. In this episode, we take a candid look at what the millennials have been doing to our future. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia. With me today, I have Darren McCain. Darren, I wanted to take a a slight little detour from the normal hardware discussions we have on the Hardware Asylum podcast. I mean, it it is our namesake after all, and kind of bring up something that, you know, it annoys me. I kind of understand it, and I think it is worth uh, poking fun at a little bit. RGB lighting? Well, RGB lighting, but (laughs) in this case, I think I want to do um, an entire generation. Oh, no, okay. I I mean, we're... uh, a bit older, we, you know, we're seasoned, we kind of know. don't tell. Yeah, I know. Um, Gen X, I think, is what we are. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Children of the 80s. It, yes. It's true. And that gives us kind of a unique perspective on life that maybe a lot of our listeners will share. And then uh, probably another half of our listeners are probably in the target demographic that we are going to be discussing, which is the millennials. Oh, millennials. Yes, the young, the restless, the needing to unwind. The ones born when we were graduates. Well, I think that every generation tends to look at the generations that come behind them. And some things you laugh, some things you cry, and some things you just shake your head. So I'm curious to see what it is that you're referring to. Okay. Well, there's a couple of um, news articles. We have one on Market Watch. And then one I saved from, uh, let's see, what is this? This is that LA Times. Oh, so we're talking about some pretty mainstream articles talking about millennials. So, hey, if you're a millennial, Um, let's see (laughs) see if you agree or disagree. And we'd love to hear your counterpoints in the Facebook posting or on our forums. But understand that we are poking fun at you with love in our hearts because we know that someday you'll be taking care of us. Yes, something like that. <laughs> something like that. So, all right, let's see what we got. All right, so the first one, we have the millennials and car ownership. It's complicated, which, you know, it's very social media right there. It is complicated. So in this article, they basically talk about how millennials um, have produced plenty of anxiety for automakers. I'm reading this right now. Um, as stereotype goes, entitled young adults would prefer to hail a Uber, take public transportation, and even hitch a ride from mom instead of driving. An unusual large number of young millennials haven't even bothered to get a driver's license. Now, I find that a little bit difficult to associate with, and it's not just because we're a little bit older generation and the way that we view cars, which I think you're going to go into, mm-hmm. but also because we live in a rural community here at the labs. And so in a rural community, uh, the driver's are learning younger, and that's because you need to help out on the farm. So you're included in things like learning to drive a tractor, moving stuff around with a truck on the farm. So in our area in Idaho, it's actually not uncommon to take driver's training as young as 14 and a half. And in fact, it's not uncommon even at 14 and a half to find that a large portion of your driver's training class already know how to drive or have been driving around on a farm for some time. But that is definitely an exception to the rule because that's not true in most larger populated areas of the country like we're talking about here. Yeah, in like L.A., I think the driving age is 16 or 17 or something like that. 
Well, that makes a little more sense because when you pack people in tighter, it really is a little more dangerous and requires a little more patience and maturity to drive safely. Mm -hmm. But I know that's not where you're going with this. So let's talk about these crazy millennials and their driving habits. Okay. So uh, this article, I'm going to skip around a little bit and kind of do the highlights here. It goes, uh, this has led to fears that the largest generation in the country defined as people born between 1980 and 2004 has abandoned the use to be one of the biggest rites of passage in adulthood, buying a car. And that that has a large ramification, not because of, you know, just the rite of passage, and the fact that, hey, we love our cars. We're Americans. That's what defines a country. But automakers rely on people buying vehicles to stay afloat. Well, you know, and that's really true. And as a first-time buyer when I was young, I mean, you aspire for the best car you can buy, but generally what you're buying is somebody's high mileage cast off car in the best condition as cool as possible which really is generally a pretty high mileage older car and you know it's funny you say that because i just read an article this week and it came through our local paper here but it was republished i think from forbes or uh one of those larger publications and that was talking about the death of the sedans because People just aren't buying these entry-level sedans anymore. They're waiting longer, and they're spending money on larger, more expensive vehicles, trucks, and SUVs, or, as you mentioned, not purchasing at all. Mm-hmm. So these entry-level cars aren't selling well at all. Yeah. Well, And the funny thing, um, I'm thinking back about all the cars that I've owned. Mm-hmm. Not a single one of them has been new off of a car lot. All of my vehicles have been used. I, I've never actually bought a brand new car. So I'm, I'm keeping cars going, but I'm also the type of person that likes to customize cars. And when you get a brand new one, it's really hard to customize it because you lose your warranty and all that other stuff. So, you know, like my the S10 Extreme, which we've talked about on the podcast before, it's one that I bought fairly low miles. Uh, I paid a lot of money for it, actually. And over the years, I've customized it. I put a new engine in it. I put new brakes on it. I got custom wheels for it. I've had it painted. You know, I do a lot to that car to keep it going. I get it. But you also are talking about a lot of time and money invested, which isn't really the millennial way. I mean, let's face it. You and I grew up with pictures of cars, trucks, girls on the wall. And millennials don't have that cultural in them. They're not that kind of person because they're spending their time online. Really, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. Yeah, so let's see. The next little paragraph I want to bring up, uh, the cost of housing is just the need of space will drive people out of places that are less dense, uh, says this guy, uh, pricing industry analyst for Edmonds. Uh, The less density means you need the vehicle to get around. Some critics are skeptical that millennials will ever catch up prolonging car buying, they say, means fewer cars purchased during one's lifetime, a problem for the auto industry and also for the used car market. Yeah. Well, let's face it. Somebody has to buy the car new Mm -hmm. or it doesn't exist as a used car, right? That's just common sense. Yeah. See, many say are also alarmed by the trend occurring among the youngest millennials. Only about 60% of today's 18-year-olds have a driver's license compared to 80% in the 1980s, according to the study from the University of Michigan. That's basically speaking to the fact that just they're at the age where they can have a license, but they don't need one, so they don't bother getting one. Now, this is something, again, that I find hard to associate with, and some of it might be the generation, some of it might be the rural community we live in, but I just can't imagine not having the ability to go out and get in a car and do what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, they asked uh, some lady's mom here, she's 47, asked, she made her 26-year-old son, uh, Andre, get a license, and then because he rarely drove a car, he got rid of it. And I'm like, you have it and you get rid of it? It's like, 
you know, why? I guess maybe he didn't have it renewed or something like that. But. Well, you know, we're always reading about the Ubers and the car ownership sharing pools and that kind of thing that are growing, especially in the urban areas. And, and that's the concept that you only need a car occasionally, so why own one? So you either pay someone else to drive you around or mass transit, which is basically the same thing, or this rise of what I would say is a co-op car, right? So you can go online, you can book your car through, oh, dozens of different services for an hour, a day, a weekend, whatever you need, and pay just for the time that you need. But even that makes the assumption that you're a licensed, insurable driver. And that's that's just not as common. And in the big city, I get that because you can use the mass transit. You're in walking distance of so many different things. And I... I'm also kind of getting the vibe that these millennials don't really want to get a license because they can't be bothered. This next paragraph I want to bring up here. Um, a lot of people my age have affordable, reliable cars, says Brandon. He's a 30-year-old real estate agent who lives in San Diego within walking distance of his office. I bought a Prius because I wanted to get great gas mileage. Ah, uh, the Prius. <laughs> and it's like, okay. The Prius gives you great gas mileage, but it's an electric car. It lasts about five years before you have to pay for almost another car to replace the battery in it. That's not an affordable car. Well, it's a short-term solution, right? Yeah, it so is. Not and, a very Ford featured car. And granted, you know, you may last longer or shorter depending on your habits, but mm-hmm. it isn't what I would consider a full featured car or an enthusiast car maybe. And that maybe is because... I don't know. I've just grown up so much differently. Mm-hmm. So um, the last couple of things I want to bring up in this article before we move on, we have this one, par- this one paragraph. It's all by itself. It's actually more of a sentence. And it really defines this whole article and this whole generational thing, right? Driving gives me anxiety, Sloan said. I also don't like looking for parking. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I can relate to not looking for parking. I hate trying to find a parking spot. You never have one that's close. And a lot of times you go to a garage, you're driving up four levels and you're wondering at that point, is like, well, do I reach the top? And is there going to be a spot? You know, stuff like that. But, you know, the driving gives me anxiety thing. It's like, that's something you get over just because you do it sort of thing. Yeah, and I think that's true of so many different things. And this may be a bit of a stereotype. So, you know, don't take offense. But it is really true that, we are, are kind of becoming a culture that is entitled and sheltered just in general. And, I, and again, a bit of a stereotype because that's mm-hmm. not true of everyone. No. But it really does matter when you're talking about a large investment like buying a house or a car or the time and energy that it takes to go out and be a driver because that can be a very scary thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no avoiding the fact that a car is a big dangerous machine. And if you're not going to take the time to master it, well, then... Yeah, okay. Maybe you don't need to be driving. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that when we learned how to drive, it was ingrained. It's like, okay, you drive this thing respectively because it can, you know, kill people. It can crash into other things. And we were price driven because if you crash your car, you can't get around. And then you still have to pay to have it fixed. And then you might have to pay to have the other person's car fixed. Right. Okay. So cars may be a bit of an extreme example, but I know you had some other examples too of things that that are being associated with millennials ruining them. Yeah. This one's kind of fun. Uh, This is at Market Watch. Um, The title is, here are things millennials have been accused of killing from wine corks to golf. (laughs) No, I like this article and it is maybe a little bit more tongue in cheek, a little more fun to talk about because Millennials definitely can't get a break, which is how it starts, because they're being blamed for a lot of 
kind of silly things. And now the car buying a little serious, but some of these, not so much. So let's walk through them as a little bit of a lighter tone and see if maybe we agree with these. Millennials, stay with us. We love you yep, again. We do. Yeah, keep listening. So, All right. So, uh, well, let's start at the first one. The nine to five work week. Oh, isn't this the truth? Really? Yeah. Yeah, it says, uh, basically, it's millennials are demanding more flexibility in their jobs. And nearly 40% of U.S. workers can work from home at least one day a week. You know, that, that used to be a huge benefit, right? Now, I have to agree that I think this is a great thing that you have more flexibility in your jobs. I especially like the ability to work from home. But the problem with that, and I'm going to paraphrase as we move on here, is the trade-off is that millennials are staying connected, which means they're actually doing more work longer. And in some cases, they're not escaping from work at all, which brings a lot of other problems to it. High Mm -hmm. stress, high anxiety, which we already talked about. But it also is driving the curve towards this expectation that workers are always on the clock. Yeah. And if you're not an hourly employee, this is not a good thing, millennials. So just keep that in mind. You're trading your flexibility for your freedom. Yeah. And also on top of that, you have to think about the other people you're working with. You know, if you have a a large portion of your coworkers that are working nine to five and we have these other people that say, hey, I'm going to roll in at 11, I'll stay working till eight o'clock. You have a very narrow time frame of when you can actually interact with your coworkers and get work done that needs to be done. Well, the good news is flexibility tends to make people happier. And as we become more and more connected, we become, I think, a little more acceptable of this always plugged in, always available mentality. And the the challenge here is to not let it be abuse. The next one, uh, focus groups. Americans in their 20s and 30s are too cynical of revealing their hopes and dreams and buying habits advertisers directly. One market officer, so on and so forth, basically talking about... um, participating in things that drive the market and how the market changes. Well, and that's true of marketing too. And I think the side effect of this is that marketing is becoming more invasive and more aggressive in an attempt to get um, attention. And some great examples of that are things like the Netflix Hulu effect, where you can just skip commercials entirely. Mm -hmm. So I think millennials, and to some extent this is becoming true of even our age group, are willing to pay more to have less of that invasive, and we're definitely becoming more cognizant, which is a good thing, of our privacy, especially as we become more net exposed. Yeah, and that's the important part. You know, once you put everything out on the internet where anyone else can get it more readily, it becomes a danger. Well, this is a hard lesson to learn, and I think the millennials are really driving this because there was a really a huge trends toward exposing everything with Facebook and MySpace and, mm-hmm. and Tinder. And I mean, you're putting so much out there and you just can't get it back. And if you're putting stuff out there that might embarrass you later, which sometimes people are doing, especially when you're young, dumb, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can't get that back and it may come back to haunt you later. So I think as we're becoming more cognizant of that, we really need to get a handle on net neutrality and net privacy laws. And the millennials, I think, are going to drive that. And that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. Uh, the, the focus group thing before we move on, that's mostly related to, um, you know, when we were kids, there was, uh, at least in the Idaho area, you would have uh, test groups. So they would send oh, yeah. out like a brand new cereal for you to try out. And then in response to that, you'd say, well, how you liked it? Would you like the texture? Would you like the box? And that was used later on to either improve that product or decide if it was going to go to market or not. You can't do that so much because you don't share, Mm -hmm. and it makes it harder to actually tailor products for a larger group of people. I Yeah, I get that. I see that trend. 
Yeah, so the next one, uh, dinner dates. This is kind of the same thing, right? They're basically saying that the dinner dates are gone because you don't need to actually um, get to know your date. I get this, and this is where we start to kind of wander into the, you know, get off my lawn mentality because I really kind of think that this is sad. I mean, we talk about things like the Netflix and chill and and the Tinder swipes and the, the kind of casual relationships that are out there. And I think it breeds a lack of... I don't even know how you'd put it. Respect, maybe. But it takes away, I think, a lot of things that, that make getting to know someone special and, and event-driven. You know, that going out on a date and planning something special and taking the opportunity to, to turn it into, I mean, really an event is right, something mm-hmm. memorable and, and special. And instead, we're spending a lot more time being casual. And, and maybe in the long run, that's not such a bad thing because there's a lot less pressure in it. It is a lot cheaper. Oh, yeah. But I look back at, at my dating career, and, and the high points really were cool dates and special activities that you spend a lot of time and effort doing. Yeah, they, and, they created memories that you either love or hate, right? Yeah, I absolutely agree. So I, I think that millennials, yeah, there's something to be said for this casual time together, and I, I get the casual hookup thing. I was young once, too. <laughs> but don't let that remove the specialness of planning cool time together, especially if you think that you found the one. My advice. Uh, cruises along the same lines. They um, they see cruises being for old people. And uh, admittedly, our generation felt the same way. Cruises yes. were typically very, very expensive. And you couldn't afford to be away for two, three weeks at a time because of jobs and responsibilities. Very true. Now, so. I like to think that this is a trend that will reverse itself because I think that millennials are more globally focused because... Their constant plugged in means that they're more cognizant of what's going on in the world around them, which means that maybe they don't get out as much, but they do. They want to see things. They more want to get aware. around. And so what little time they spend is more targeted. And I think that cruises have the opportunity to cater to that. And as a multiple cruiser myself and initially a reluctant cruiser, I can tell you that, that it does cater to the millennial aspect of having yourself cared for because you can pay up front. You know exactly what it's going to cost. You know that you're going to be completely taken care of. You know exactly what to expect. And there's something to be said, millennials, for waking up and being someplace different with no effort on your own part every day on a cruise. So don't discount that. I would take the time to make sure that you're getting on a cruise that isn't targeted at that geriatric crowd. But there are youth and themed cruises out there. And I think that's the next growth portion is an example you could go on a a cruise that caters to the type of music you like or a singles cruise you know but it gives you an opportunity to get that adventure out there i'm a little sad that these are an endangered species because there are so much more high-tech cooler boats and fancier positions and cool outings Mm -hmm. that i think is worth the effort so i would encourage you to not write them off yet millennials (laughs) there's something there to be seen yeah one that's not on the list that kind of related to cruises Join the Navy. Join the Navy. Yeah, maybe that will give you the education that you need. Good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, napkins. Uh, This is one that I could agree with because, you know, I would rather grab a paper towel just because they are readily available. I laugh about this because I did not realize that this was a thing I did. I was, you know, completely against it. Now, I do keep some napkins around, and they tend to be for the nice company meals when you take the time to cook for somebody. Mm -hmm. But even that's a bit of an endangered species. I mean, there's something about having that towel rack up there and just tearing one off. It's convenient. It's easy. And honestly, 
napkins really are kind of old-fashioned, especially cloth napkins. I mean, seriously? Yeah, I know. Well, you have to wash those afterwards. Yeah, and we've become a bit of a disposable generation, and the difference between a paper towel and a napkin, in my mind, is perception-based, man. You go with what works. And honestly, I think millennials are driving a trend where we're just not really so concerned with the hotty toddy fanciness of a napkin or a fancy dinner. Yeah. Well, and that could be cost driven too. So mm-hmm. uh, this next one, I don't quite understand this one. It says running. <laughs> and I mean, uh, yeah, the 80s, 70s, 80s was the jogging generation, right? Right. And, that, and that's kind of carried on a little bit. And now they're saying that um, the largest share of runners, 18 to 34, made up only 33% of runners in 2015. Oh, big decline, huh? So they're saying that running is in a decline, but I would also argue that gyms are on a rise, you know, like actually just working out in a building instead of... Running sucks, and and it's not really the most effective way to work out. So no, that's true. I don't know that I consider this a bad thing. I think gym ownership's up. I think millennials, when they do exercise, are participating in outdoor activities. Maybe it's something as simple as a Frisbee golf or yeah. you know, soccer or something, but I think millennials are participating in a way that is a little more rounded, less targeted. And let's mm-hmm. face it, uh, running is kind of a solitary, boring sport, it's not really even the best way to exercise. So good yeah. on you guys. Yeah. Running socks. All right. So this one, this is kind of dear to my heart because I'm a golfer and it's golf. Another, okay. And I'll just kind of paraphrase this. Another sport millennials have been blamed for doing away with is golf. They're playing fewer rounds and even watching it less on TV. Um, in 2016, in fact, they estimated that the apathy continues. Golf, as we know, it could disappear in 52 years. Uh, now, I can kind of associate this because watching golf is not fun. Well, that's true of a lot of sports. Well, especially when you have a high-energy sport like an e-sport where everything's going on all uh-huh. the time. Golf is kind of boring. It's more of a, a, a relaxing strategy kind of But I thing. think the perception, this is kind of similar to cruising. The perception is that golf is for old people, maybe mm-hmm. rich people, maybe boring people. And I think that, that golf has got a problem where they're not attracting the millennials because they kind of are trying to put on airs and be a little stuffy and, yeah. and culturally structured. Um, but I am starting to see some changes in that. I mean, locally we have a golf course that's offering a, a soccer golf hybrid where you can go out and kick the soccer oh, yeah. ball around on the course, for example. And I have seen, you know, night glow golf tournaments and that sort of thing. So I think it's out there. I just don't think it's got any traction. Well, and, and again, it, it will dis- they say it will dis- disappear as we know it. And honestly, I kind of would rather that maybe stuff like baseball and NASCAR would disappear. And <laughs> yeah, but uh, I guess they didn't list that one. Yeah, okay. This next one, oh, I don't understand this at all. Soap bars. Soap bars. Yeah, see, uh, they're basically saying that um, right here, millennials found soap bars gross with 60%, 60% saying that they believe it is covered with germs after use. This doesn't make sense to me at all. And it says that they prefer liquid soap, but I guess it's because it comes out of a tube, right? So it, mm-hmm. it's safer. Bed, bath, and beyond marketing. Uh, right. Now, uh, all right. So soap bars maybe requires a little more effort. Is that where they're coming from? But yeah. the fact that people say soap bars are gross, to me, this is a kind of a one of those weird contradictions. All right. Well, if the soap bar is dirty, then you haven't 
cleaned yourself cleaned so that just means that you're doing something else wrong yeah it's kind of like uh the towel mm. that gets you wet that now that's dirty because you weren't clean when you came out of the shower yeah, yeah. yeah. all right so uh, all right i'll give you millennials i don't i don't get this one to me i thought the millennials would bring cool things like you know bacon smelling soap and caffeinated soap and we'd kind of yeah, see that that would be awesome yeah you know maybe all right so the next three are kind of related Sex, relationships, and marriage. Oh, my gosh. Now, this makes me sad because I never thought I'd see the day where we'd be talking about a downward trend in people's desire to be together physically, and and that's Mm -hmm. about as nicely as I can put it. Now, this is especially prevalent or at least publicized in, you know, the Oriental culture where it seems like I'm always seeing articles that they find sex gross and they want to date virtually, which means that you might have a relationship with someone that you would never see. Yeah. And of course it doesn't really surprise me that that would cause problems with relationships. And this kind of goes back to the whole Tinder generation thing because we're treating relationships more casually. So you have less desire to build a lasting relationship. And by the time you do, you might have so much baggage that it's difficult to overcome or difficult to associate with a long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. This is affecting marriage. This is affecting relationships. This is affecting our long-term ability to build lasting relationships, not just with people that we're involved with or married with. But I'm also finding that that millennials can be more, I, I don't know, shifting in their friend circles. So you don't really build as long a lasting relationships with friends too, because your social circle is more constantly changing. Yeah. And it, I would say that's the console sort of, you know, you have this console in front of you, so you don't interact with people. I agree. Now the good news about that is because again, you're being more worldly. You have maybe a larger circle of friends. They're just not as close as they would have been in years in my generation. Mm-hmm. And that kind of relates to this next one, which is face-to-face interaction. Yeah. You know, I, we joke pretty constantly that the younger you get, the more time you spend looking at your screen. And it is really kind of sad to me that you look over at these younger groups of kids at the dinner table when you're out at a restaurant and they're having a nice meal together and they haven't made eye contact since they sat down and they might actually be communicating with the person next to them via text. Yeah. Yeah. And it used to be that you would have your phone out there and if you had a bad date, you would text somebody to say, hey, (laughs) save me, and then you would excuse yourself and take off. Well, the reality is this has other side effects too because millennials and and the constant connected generations that are coming are finding it more and more difficult to be socially interactive. And I think that in the long run, that's going to hurt us quite a bit and it's going to going to rise a lot of different types of anxiety, social conditions, uh, yeah. the isolation, the depression that goes with it. So uh, I, I definitely encourage you to find a more rounded life, even if you just have to find an evening where you're out doing something active, you know, find that balance. Yeah. I mean, heck, we used to go cruising just to interact with people. I know. And that just seems so old fashioned now. Yeah, there's there's like, <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. We go cruising in our car to go interact with people at night total stranger it's like complete opposite right but we were always looking for something to do going dancing or finding a show or going to someone's house to hang out at a party you know it was trying to find reasons to go be together and i hope that makes a comeback yeah uh let's see uh we have vacations and home ownership you know those are kind of self-explanatory because they are about spending money that they don't have and we've kind of already talked about both of those things but this next one wine corks now this one i i have to laugh about because I I really have witnessed this, and I get this whole concept that a wine cork is an antique. 
Now, let's face it, wine corks existed initially to protect wines from spoiling. So millennials now are drinking wine out of twist tops and out of boxes, which was sacrilegious when we were young, and that meant that you were buying a junk wine. Yeah. You know, the equivalent of your night train or your mad dog at the convenience store. (laughs) And it was just looked down on. But the reality is the whole technology, the whole reason that we have corks uh, has kind of passed us by. We've gotten so good at bottling things mm-hmm. that it just doesn't make sense that you have to use an antique device to get a piece of essentially wood out of a bottle that may or may not crumble and destroy the wine in the process, may or may not leak, may or may not cause the wine to spoil when the alternative is just to screw the cat back on. So I'm kind of with the millennials on this. And I think really the only reason that corks have survived is because when we go out, there's this whole pomp and circumstance about the presentation of the wine and the removing of the cork in the wine bottle. And the same is kind of true of champagne, that it's become an event thing. And I think that millennials can see through that. Yeah. And I look at it as... I like the fact that we had corks. It's a very traditional way. And, but for me, drinking wine was not something that I did when I came home. It was something you did on a special occasion. You don't go out and spend $500 on a bottle of wine just to drink it that evening. Granted, you don't do that when you buy it out of a box, but that was the mentality that I have always grown up with. Right. I kind of like the fact that, you know, the, the whole corking or uncorking aspect of it. But, you know, again, I know technology is the way that it is, and that's, you don't need to. Well, interestingly enough, millennials are also drinking more wine. So I think that we're going to see that trend continue. Yes. Uh, the next one. I would say is related to wine corks, and it's called diamonds because uh. you know there was there was a time when uh, what was it uh, someone in the Europe somewhere I think it was in England or something like that they were trying to figure out how to make uh, a market around diamonds. Yeah, yeah. So then they started saying, well, when you buy uh, a, a diamond ring for a wedding. You have to, you had to spend a certain amount of what you made, and that's how big of a diamond you need to oh, buy. Oh, yeah, because if you love them, you'll spend two months or three months of your salary, right? Yeah. And that was all marketing to just sell more diamonds. Well, you know, millennials aren't getting married, so they don't necessarily need to buy diamonds in the traditional sense. So I, I can see how that would be going away, but I mean... Well, the reality is, is it doesn't even take a lot of research to understand that the diamond market kind of is a sham. Mm-hmm. And again, millennials are more educated and have more access to information. I think it's become more clear what's going on. And they already aren't getting married as much. And they're spending less money on it. And the reality is that almost everything about getting married is driven by commerce and by money. And I'd encourage you to to take a look at that. There's a great Adam Ruins Everything About Weddings that's really <laughs> worth a listen. And we'll have to link to that in the in the show notes. But, you know, there's so much tradition that we've held on to just because without really examining it. And the millennials, if they're driving anything good, it's reexamining these old cultural uh, benchmarks and determining if there's really any merit behind them. Yep. So they're driving change, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Oh, this last one is an interesting one. Yeah, this last one's called Department Stores, and I would say it goes along with the diamonds. It says here, online shopping grows in popularity with millennials shopping uh, habits shift from stores from like brick and mortar, Macy's, JCPenney's to, you know, stuff you can buy on Amazon. Well, I like to think that we're helping drive this, but the millennials will be the death knoll in a lot of these companies. And JCPenney is a great example. Sears also. Mm-hmm. Companies that refuse to adapt thought they could get by on their reputations, are finding that millennials aren't stupid. They'll shop it. 
and companies like Amazon and, and, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg are really going to drive these companies that can't compete out of business because we have more choices. We have more education and we have more feedback on what we're purchasing up front to the point now where the necessity to see touch something has become a thing of the past. I like to think that virtual reality is actually the next stage in this where you'll be able to, you know, go online and say, Hey, I like that shirt. What's it going to look like on me? And through the magic of VR and technology, you'll be able to interpose it on you. <laughs> you won't need to try on clothes anymore. Yeah. Um, the f- thing that I find most interesting about this last one. Okay. Um, Sears and JC Penney. Those are very, very old established names in the United States. Do you remember how they started? Oh, catalog business, right? Catalogs. They would mail catalogs to farms all over, and then you would order out of the catalog. You'd send in your check or money or whatever in an envelope with what you wanted, Mm -hmm. and within a couple of months, you would get that item shipped directly to you. Oh, yeah. There was a time when your Christmas shopping waited very patiently for the Christmas catalog to come out. Yep. And that was that was how those companies established themselves without a brick and mortar. And as the uh, popularity of that brand rose, they decided, well, we need to have these shops where let's get the products to our consumers faster. So they started setting up like stores. And then the farmers would go down to the store instead of, you could still catalog shop, right. but now you could go around and say, I want that, I want that, I want that. And that became a very cultural way of shopping for things. And it was also less expensive. You didn't have to pay for the shipping. Back then, shipping was really expensive and it took a long time. Right. I find it interesting that things are actually making a reverse ship where, you know, a reversal where now we are doing online shopping, but we have to be wary of like clones of stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, like with Sears and JCPenney, you had that brand behind it. So everything they sold was always a certain quality. Now we have like these Chinese knockoffs that you can buy for $10 or you could buy the real product that might actually work for, you know, $200. And so you have to, it's buyer beware, but at the same time, it's like, how do you know which one you want unless you can see it? So it's, it still has a long ways to go. I would say um, the VR is going to help with the, you know, the clothes shopping. As long as you know what your size is, you can order that kind of stuff. Uh, it kind of sucks. Uh, around here, for instance, we have Best Buy. We can't go to a store and buy a high-end motherboard or buy a processor or buy a video card because usually they're out of stock. The best way and the only way to buy that kind of stuff is to go to like Newegg or Amazon and have it shipped to you. It's just crazy how that has made a shift almost 180 degrees. But I think that, you know, millennials may be driving this, but I I think that the adaptation is inevitable. You know, eventually uh, you're just going to have to adapt or die. And that's, you know, that's just life. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, these have been some interesting articles and it's a nice diversion, I think, from our normal technical discussion. So I'm hoping that something in here resonated with you. And if it did, Come out to our Facebook and our forums and talk to us about it. And if you're a millennial, of course, you may have a completely different opinion, and that's all right, too. We'd love to hear it. So check us out on the Hardware Asylum forums. Thanks. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on HardwareAsylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS. Follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2017. Thanks for listening.